Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. Hi, can you please introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, my name is Astrid Castro, and I am the founder and director of Adoption Mosaic. Can you tell me a little bit about your adoption story? Yes. So um, my adoption story, I was adopted when I was about four and a half years old. My sister was six and we were uh, born in Colombia and came to the United States in 1975 uh, and were adopted by a family that was uh, living in Massachusetts at the time and um, and in an all white suburb of Boston. Do you have memories of being adopted at that age since you were a little bit older? Uh, I have one memory of us being in the orphanage, uh, which was, you know, I mean, we were in the orphanage, so it wasn't a very happy memory. Uh, and my sister, however, she has a lot more memories. Um, she, it turns out she has more memories than I thought she did. And it wasn't until we reunited and found our birth mother that I realized uh, that how many deep memories, like she remembered the length of our mother's hair, which was wow. like something that was just so tactile, right? So um, like small yet huge. Cause when mm -hmm. we, and, and the way um, I discovered that was when we got off the plane and uh, we met Carmenza. Well, I had already found her and met her uh, and had visited her twice before my sister was able or wanted to go down or was able to. And um, and when my sister saw our mom, she said in Spanish, because my sister speaks Spanish pretty well, uh, she said, Mama, you cut your hair. And I remember just being so taken back and being like, wow. I didn't realize the depth of how much she remembered because I, I didn't, I don't have any memory of our mother. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, that was just, that was interesting. How old were you when you decided to, to search for your birth mother? Mm, uh, so I was uh, about uh, 18. I mean, I'd always known that I wanted to search. I think 18 was when I put my big toe uh, in um, in a boiling of pot of hot water and was like, uh, yikes. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> um, yeah. I think so many of your listeners can probably relate to that, right? Yes. Uh, it's, it's that experience of like this especially when I was 18, there wasn't this community that exists now and there wasn't blogs and, and podcasts and amazing support and resources that there are now. And so uh, I was kind of on my own. I was doing, um, I don't even remember what kind of search it was, but I went somewhere and um, I had typed in uh, the name that we had on our paperwork and, um, and thought, well, I'll just see. And then Facebook came out a couple years after that. And so I want to say maybe five, seven years after that. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll start looking in that. And so every once in a while, so I 
I guess you could say air quotes, started the process when I was 18. I had always thought about the process uh, or thought about searching my entire life. Uh, I was the kid who was like, yep, I'm going to grow up and someday find our birth mother. And my sister was like, well, good for you. That's not, that's not not my agenda. Um, And so, uh, yeah, so I just, I guess I just knew I was, I was really eager to someday get all the answers to my questions. I had, you know, I had I had this fantasy of what being in reunion was and what it would feel like and what it would look like. And, uh, and so that's what I wanted. I wanted to, ser- I was searching for that. I was searching to fill that all those gaps and all those answers. I wasn't searching for what I ended up finding. Uh, and, um, which that is just simply to say a complex, uh, relationship that had its uh, cultural differences, uh, language differences, uh, economic, like religious, all of these things, like those, none of those were any part of my truth of what I was looking for. It wasn't even part of my consciousness. I think I was really, it was a very simplistic uh, thing that I was looking for. Yeah, I I totally understand because when I started to search too, like I just expected to to find more family, have that happily ever after, click, bond immediately. And that's not what happened for me at all. And it's just so complex. And like you mentioned, like the language barrier, that for me is like one of the hardest things to deal with because, um, my entire family over there just speaks Spanish and I only have one sibling that knows how to use like Google translate. So she tries to speak in English to me. Um, and it's just, it's just sad, like not being able to communicate with our own family. And, um, do you, do you know Spanish at all? So I speak, uh, fluent Italian. Uh, my daughter's father, uh, Oops, sorry. Um, my daughter's father is Italian, born and raised in Italy, and I went and lived there for three years, um, almost three years, and uh, and really immersed myself in the language. So I speak Italian fluently, and uh, Italian and Spanish are so similar yeah. that I can get by pretty well. Except, um, let me turn this. Except that. Uh, I sound, I think, kind of ridiculous when I speak. Because <laughs> people in Colombia, when they hear me, or people even here in the States, um, when they hear me speak Spanish, they're like, what? Wait, what is that? It, it, maybe that's Portuguese. So a lot of people think <laughs> I'm speaking Portuguese. And I'm like, no, no, it's it's choppy Italian. My daughter and I try to c- come up, you know, like um, Etanglish um, is Italian and English and Spanglish yeah. is Right. So we're trying to come up with a term that is Spanish and Italian. Yeah. It's funny because I totally understand what you mean, because my adoptive family is Italian and I grew up hearing them and speaking it. And then I kind of lost it uh, when I really tried to connect to my Colombian roots. And now like they try to speak me Italian and I cannot answer back. It's like broken Spanish. (laughs) It's just a mess. 
Yes, yes, it, it absolutely. And um, but now I've had enough practice uh, with uh, Carmenza, our mom, and uh, and I I do just fine. I can't speak intelligently about complex issues. I like to say I speak. My Spanish is probably like a four or five-year-old. So most four or five-year-olds can get all their needs met, uh, can get their point <laughs> across when they need to, yeah. right? And you ask them to speak in depth about something and yeah, I can't, I can't talk politics. I can't <laughs> religion. I can, I can speak adoption actually pretty well in Spanish, um, but uh, much, and that's a really interesting thing. Like I, when I work with families in the work that I'm doing now at Adoption Mosaic, uh, I, and families are talking to me about, oh, we've reunited or we're going to start, or, you know, building a relationship with uh, the birth family that we have recently found in Guatemala or in any, any country. Uh, mm -hmm. I, um, you know, I like to have a conversation about like, what does language mean? Uh, and what does relearning your birth language mean? What does it mean for adoptive parents to speak uh, better Spanish or better whatever language uh, than the child? If the child is a teenager, um, I know that when I went back to Colombia and my adoptive parents came uh, and my dad, he's really a mathematical science kind of guy. He's really brainy and mm -hmm. him learning a language wasn't super challenging for him. He it was like, yeah, I'll just, I'll study it and learn it. Right. And uh, yeah. Right. And so I remember I was, I want to say I was 19 and I just remember this overwhelming feeling of being really embarrassed that my white parents could be, speak Spanish better than I could. And I mean, I literally couldn't speak Spanish and, uh, and that that was that inadequacy felt mm -hmm. really uh, just belittling. And of course, of course, my parents didn't think of that even for two seconds, right? And yeah, didn't, and they weren't, and that wasn't the intention. They didn't feel that way um, at all. That that's why they were doing that or whatever. And so, um, and that's not something I was able to even speak into uh, existence. Like I wasn't able to process or dialogue because I didn't have the language of how I was feeling about that. So yeah, language is, um, it's, it's a whole conversation around uh, international uh, adoptions. And I think that we need to be having more conversations about that. Yeah, I definitely agree. And just thinking about my process, like trying to learn Spanish over the years, it's been so emotionally draining. And I feel like other like other people, when they talk to me, they're like, oh, just learn it. Just watch telenovelas. Like, I'm like, it's not that easy because it's like I have this emotional block that makes it painful because like you mentioned, like, I feel like I should already know. So I have this like internal shame and my adoptive parents, they speak Spanish too. So like having them also know it and then me not, I, I just feel like even more of like, not a failure, but like in that type of vein. Mm -hmm. And um, like you mentioned, I feel like more people should talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and it's so interesting. I've actually, if there's any, if any of your lister, listeners have any connections to a linguistic, uh, somebody who is a professional linguistic uh, and has knows of anybody who's done any research around adoptees and, uh, and 
and those of us who are internationally adapted and we lose our language, what the emotional, uh, the, the, the scientific emotional journey that we go through. Because like you, I, I believe, uh, and I don't have any research to back this up, but I do believe that if we are relearning our birth language, which was taken away from us as a result of the consequences of trauma, which every adoption, right, <laughs> begins yeah. with the trauma. If uh, and if we're relearning our new language, whether it's just here as babies, we're hearing the sound of this new language that doesn't match the sounds that we are accustomed to, that we should be listening to. Then that means our brain is rewiring itself to learn this new language, these new sounds, right? If we're learning these new sounds or this new these new words in this trauma state, uh, that then when we go back to relearning it, I'm wondering if there is connections, if there like there's scientific connections of this is why it's so hard for us to relearn our birth language, our mother tongue, which is so ironic that that's the term we use, right? Our mother tongue for yes. adoptees, because when people say, ask me if I, you know, uh, if English is my mother tongue, it's, that's a really like deep, complex question because for us, it's like, uh, yeah, but I don't speak it anymore. Like, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. so, so I, I do think that I'm hoping either there is research or somebody out there will do some research around that because how many adoptees, I'm sure you as well, uh, Melissa, how many of adoptees are out there who have really struggled learning their mother tongue. That's different than learning a, like, I've proven to myself that I can learn a foreign language because I learned. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's not like my brain is in a way that and is I that I can't learn a language. Absolutely, I can learn a language. And uh, and you know the comments that people say, I, I love that. It's I've experienced that too. But is oh well, it's probably back there somewhere. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're like. Oh, yeah. And that somewhere is filled with trauma. That's somewhere. Yeah. Locked up real tight. <laughs> yeah. Locked up with loss and grief and all of that. So, yeah. And I'm wondering if it's like it's stuck in some way in, in that space. Mm -hmm. And like, that's one of the reasons why I believe if you're going to adopt a child internationally, you you should make an effort to learn the language and keep it alive in your adoptive family. And especially because when I was studying psychology in college, they tell you that the most pivotal time to learn languages is from two to seven. And if you like kind of miss that window after that, it makes it even more difficult to learn. So as adults, I know me and like you and like other adoptees are struggling with trying to relearn it. And we're, we're faced with even more barriers. It's like the trauma aspect, just the scientific aspect of language and development and that stuff. So uh, I think that's another important aspect, like you mentioned, that we need to, to discuss more. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and taking it to one step further, uh, I think that we have an industry that needs an overhaul. Uh, and the way we talk about adoption and the way we uh, talk about uh, having like 
language is one of those things that I think, yes, adoptive parents, um, adoptive parents are adopting children that they can help keep intact their, their mother tongue. And yet Mm -hmm. I think we also need to have an industry that requires and supports that. Right. Yeah. So it, to me, it goes way beyond just the adoptive parents. Uh, it goes it goes to if there's the industry standard that actually we need you to have a connection to this country or we need you to um, be in a space where you have the means to help support travel back back going back and forth and traveling every, I don't know, five years or helping learn the language. And, you know, a lot of families will say to me, well, Language, the whole thing around language is really interesting. However, when you look at some of the languages, like our children came from a language that's not even a written or a, a language that's people, you know, read or write today. It's, you know, a language in Guatemala and the, in a tribal, more of a tribal language. Uh, and I, I still feel like Okay, but when your kid walks off the plane in Guatemala, can they communicate to anyone, right? And so that's a step. Um, And so it feels like, uh, yeah, and and the science, we also know that learning a language at a young age um, puts those... um, links those neurons together in a way that it's like, oh, if you've learned one second language as a child, learning a third or fourth um, as you're older is easier. So yeah. at least you're helping make those connections in the brain when they're young. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of work ahead of us, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And like, you vaguely touched upon it, but like, um, the for parents to make sure that they have enough funds to, to make trips back to the birth country. I I feel like there's this issue where parents will go above and beyond to save up money, to do fundraisers, to make sure that they can afford to adopt a child. But then after that, it's like, okay, I did all that. I'm going to take care of my baby to the best of my possibility but then they kind of forget the other things so like um talking to my own mom she's like oh yeah like we tried to take you to those like heritage camps but then it became too expensive and so it's like of course money is gonna be an issue for some families depending on the economy or whatever but it, it bothers me like how can you put that much time and that much effort sometimes taking two jobs or whatever to to adopt a child but then after that once you have what you want, you're not going to do that extra effort to make sure your child is having those resources that they need. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there's so much in that, Melissa. <laughs> sorry. Um, like, no. Oh my goodness. Don't be sorry. It's these are the conversations and the dialogues we absolutely need to be having, and that we need to, in order to move uh, this for, in, in order to move adoptions forward, and and have ethical uh, adoptions that uh, are thoughtful and. Um, child-centered, we have to have these conversations. And it's actually really hard for me to even say to have these hard conversations. These are these are basic as far as I'm concerned. These are basic conversations that we need to roll our sleeves up, 
stop getting so defensive and uh, and figure out a way to make big overhaul changes um, and for the next generation or even for the generation that, you know, the generation now. Uh, with regard to what you're saying, again, I I work with social workers, I work with adoption agencies, I work with adoptive parents, uh, you know, and the the range and adoptees. And uh, I work with some birth and first parents as well, not as much as as the other uh, pieces of uh, the adoption triad. Uh, But I will say, to me, it goes back to industry standards. <laughs> like what are we as, and so pointing a finger at a ind- an individual um, for me is very, uh, is one of those things that I feel doesn't move us forward in the direction that I want to see us be in, where when we're looking at what, how do we define ethical adoptions and you and so many other people out there uh, are, uh, starting to ask these really hard questions. And I think that the the result of that um, will be better standards and, and better practices for um, for adoptions. And so, yeah, I in the ideal, like when it, while you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, ideally, um, we that families would be adopting children, that they would have the resources for travel every three to five years, uh, language, private language classes, because putting us in Spanish immersion classes where, you know, the majority of everybody else um, is being raised by Spanish speaking families. And we look like we should be raised by Spanish speaking families, but we don't. And then, then the divide that happens within that and the trauma that we have to experience within our classmates judging us and teasing us and bullying us because we don't fit the stereotype or the mold. So I don't think there's one easy solution. Uh, It's so complex and we can't come up with any solution if we don't have these conversations. So, yeah. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to Adoptee Thoughts. I'm interrupting your regularly scheduled programming just to share a little bit about my new book, What White Parents Should Know About Transracial Adoption. It is currently available for pre-order from any bookstore online, and it will be available in stores October 5th. This book is basically the white fragility for transracial adoption. It includes practical tools for nurturing identity, unlearning white saviorism, and fixing the mistakes you don't even know you're making if you're an adoptive parent. But it's not just for white adoptive parents. This book is for everybody who is interested in learning more about the history and nuances of transracial adoption and international adoption. From original research, from personal stories, and even interviews with parents and adoptees. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important. We need to get rid of the defensiveness. And I I get like, as adoptees, you mentioned before, we have trauma. So a lot of times when we talk to our parents, like, I feel like these conversations can get heated very quickly. And I, I feel like adoptive parents, if you're listening, 
you need to not take it personal because yes, adoption, you adopted a child and you tried to give them the best life you can, but that all parents make mistakes and we're all kind of learning how to do this together. But now we're in 2021. There's so many resources available to help educate you, to help expand the conversations, just to begin conversations with your child. Like you can listen to a podcast or read a book together just to start those conversations together. And that it gets me to my question is just is, all these things, is that part of the reason why you created Adoption Mosaic? Mm, excellent question. Uh, so I created Adoption Mosaic because uh, there was clearly not uh, a space where people could have these conversations, some of these in-depth, hard conversations in a in a, in a space that I'm not even going to say safe space. Uh, I was in a workshop uh, not too long ago that somebody really uh, said something that really made me pause and think. Uh, they said, I don't know why people keep saying we are, we are making or creating a safe space for people to have conversations. Because safe space is only defined by the individual who is actually saying it. My safe space, I can create a, a space and call it safe, but that's safe only to me. And, uh, and so we're creating spaces with the hope that people feel open and comfortable to have conversations. And it's not a judge-free space. There's no such thing as a judge-free space. There's no such thing as um, a creating a safe space that everybody would identify and, and feel that it was safe. So um I wanted to create a place where we could roll our sleeves up and maybe at the door have the agreement that we were going to have some really uncomfortable conversations and that, that we were going to be talking about things that maybe in the outside world we don't even really have language for. We don't even know how to talk about it. And sometimes it is like demonstrating and looking what looking at what it looks like to speak in the defense on this topic versus here's what it would look like if you said the same thing and you weren't feeling as de defensive, right? So we can't really have conversations about that until we show what the two look like independently. And Adoption Mosaic is a space where we're trying to look at mm -hmm. what that looks like. And I, I think it's so wonderful. And I, I did a panel with you guys and it, it was so awesome being able to talk with other people who understood it. And even at the end with like the audience mm -hmm. asking questions, I, I feel like it was a safe place for me. Um, and and you right. made sure to make time for us before and after if we had any questions. So it, I feel like it was very beneficial, not just for the people attending the conference, but mm -hmm. also for the panel speakers. And um, it's just wonderful for me to see adoptees coming mm -hmm. together and creating these things and these programs, not just for adoptive parents, but for everyone to learn and grow. And I think that's just so beautiful in what you're doing. So I'm going to make sure to include your links in the, the show description <laughs> below so people can check out all the amazing work you're doing. Uh, do you have any more panels coming up that you want to share with us? Yes. Yes, yes. Well, and Melissa, I just want to say thank you uh, for saying all of that. That means 
that means so much to me to, when panelists come back to me and say, this was a positive experience, because as you may have heard in other interviews or other uh, things that I have talked about where my work started in, when I was 18 sitting on a panel and it didn't feel, I mean, it felt really wonderful and empowering in the moment. But then when I went home by myself and I was like, mm, I don't feel very good. Uh, this, why did I overexpose or overshare? And just to have an, another adoptee who has been on a panel and whenever an adoptee tells me that, uh, it just puts a huge <laughs> smile on my face. Uh, so thank you for saying that. Uh, yes, we, uh, the panel series is the second Saturday of every month. It is starts at 10, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific Saturday, uh, Pacific Standard Time, uh, and we it's a two-hour event. Um, and um, also, I would love it if we could put the link um, for folks that are interested in maybe being on a future panel. I have a Google form for that, and so if you're interested. And uh, yeah, the topic, the next month's topic, we are in Jan yeah. or February, so February's topic is um, adoptee change makers. And I have to say, if I had done this panel when I first started my work uh, 30 years ago, there would have been a handful of us that I would have um, been able to say, you know, please, can you be on this <laughs> panel? Uh, and now, oh my goodness, I... Yeah, it was so hard to have to pick only four adoptee change yeah. makers because, as you know, like there you would be <laughs> on there. It's like there's there's just so many adoptees that are doing such great work. Uh, so yeah, I um, this month is adoptee change makers. My hope for that is is that adoptees will get to get a glimpse of some of the work that's being done out there um, by adoptees, and uh, and that really encourage anybody who's interested in getting into the industry and building programs that there's, you know, think be like, go ahead and think beyond and outside the box. Cause there's so much out there there's so much work to be done ahead of us. Uh, that's yeah, we'll make space and hopefully support How each do other. How you feel because you've been in this industry for a while, but seeing all the new adoptees coming in and starting all these different programs, like how does that make you feel seeing, because you were one of the first and now you have all these other things like you mentioned. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's, it's a combination of like, wow, this is, it feels so fabulous. I'm so excited. I, I just want to like be able to support every single adoptee who has some program that's that they have in their mind that they want to create. Uh, one of the things that I'm seeing is, is that I think a lot, and this is one of the reasons we created We the Experts, the Adoptee Speaker Series, is because I think that so many of us have our personal stories that we haven't had an audience that wants to listen until now. And so one of the things that I'm seeing is, is that a lot of adoptees are creating programs out of their own personal, like that, that's kind of the launching for so many of us, right? Mm -hmm. It was for me, it was, that was my, but I was 18 when I did that. And so then I create, then I developed that into a career, uh, which now I much more prefer talking about the questions that you're asking me now, as far as um, 
how I got into this work and what I'm doing and the challenges and this and that, because my adoption story, I have had a platform for a really long time. I have benefited um, from being able to share my platform or share that and share my story. And I, that's not as healing for me now. And I mean, it's, if it's helping somebody else, of course, that's very healing. But as far as me personally, uh, I, uh, my healing for me is helping programs get started, helping adoptees find their voice, helping other adoptees have a platform to share their story. Uh, That is, that's where my work is really focused on more so than my own personal story. So your question of, how does it feel to see all of these adoptees uh, out there doing this work? Wonderful. And if we can help you figure out what it is that you want to do with this beyond sharing your story, uh, then even better. That's just exciting. And I, I get what you mean, because like you mentioned that you started at a young age and then you were started with telling your own story and i had like you said a similar experience i i was concentrating on like bringing more awareness to being a late discovery adoptee and that stuff but as the years have progressed and i've been in this work it's been more important to me to to make sure to create a community and not just focus on myself and i i think that's one of the reasons why like i really enjoy doing the podcasts and talking with other adoptees Mm -hmm. and just hearing other people's stories and their experiences it's it's healing for me and i feel like it can be healing for them too (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely how how we support each other uh and you know and i i actually don't think we're being we can be fair to this conversation without also saying how we hurt each other uh and um and that and that breaks my heart i um how when adoptees are so hurt that they don't realize how they're hurting their fellow adoptees um, by making comments um, on individual stories or, you know, um, or yeah, just, yeah, hating, right? Just hating on on someone. And it's so deep. It's so much more deep than that. Uh, It's um, one person's pain being expressed uh, in um, in a way that is harmful or hurtful to another, and uh, I and I think that that's just a part of it. We're bringing our vulnerable selves, and we're bringing our vulnerable stories to this uh, industry, to this field, and uh, we're and and um, so many of us don't have the safeguard to fall back on. We don't have the community. We don't have you know like Melissa. You know you could call me if you're like. Ah. Somebody just posted something that was just so awful and I could call you and we have each other. Right. And I, and, and I think about, um, this young or older middle age or whatever people out there who are attempting to, um, build and get shut down because of some, somebody or people saying things that, um, I, I, I don't condone, I think is really, sad and, and yeah. And so anyway, and yet I also recognize and acknowledge that comes out of their Mm -hmm. own pain. Uh, and so I am able to do that because I think of the years that I have been doing this. Um, but I can't imagine sharing my story and having people 
judge it in the way that it's so can so vastly be accessed accessed by others um, for them to bring their two cents or their judgments. Uh, I don't know what that's like because I don't I don't offer my story in depth like I used to when mm-hmm. I was younger. I I've definitely experienced that, especially since I write so openly about my adoption experience. And I feel like if you're an adoptee and you're thinking about sharing your story, you really need to have a plan for like self care and how to decompress and how you're going mm-hmm. to handle that. Because like mm-hmm. I personally, I go to therapy every other week. <laughs> I, I have a journal, like I have all these things that I, I make sure to do. And when I was first starting mm-hmm. off, like I always used to read the comments and cause like, I wanted to make sure like people were, were excited about the stuff, but you can't do that. <laughs> you, uh, being so vulnerable on the internet there's always going to be someone who has something negative to say and the gaslighting um i think like you mentioned the the most hurt i ever was was from another adoptee saying that like my parents couldn't have done something like that and I uh, looking back, like I see that they were totally in the fog, which is fine. You know, everybody's on their own journey, but I feel like even if you don't agree or you don't understand another adoptee's story, negating their experience and just doing stuff like that is just not okay. And we need to maybe have like a quick refresher on boundaries and respect. Like people need to remember the golden rule. And like, if you don't have something nice to say, just skip it. You don't have to absorb everything on the internet or read everyone's comments. Yeah. Well, in the same way, you know, we put a lot of energy in behind what we think the people who are causing the harm should do instead. And I wish I I saw our committee community putting just as much effort into what do I need to do for myself to uh, to put up a safety guard around that, right? So if I'm going to write something and some suggestions I would have is, is if I'm going to write something that's about, that's vulnerable, that somebody could say that that would be really, really hard to hear, uh, making sure that I have a person that I'm going to give a call to um, afterwards and that is an adoptee competent individual. Uh, make sure that uh, what, you know, I tell myself I'm not going to read the comments, all the comments like you suggested. Uh, I'm going to do some kind of self-talk around this person is obviously somebody who is hurting, who doesn't have community, who doesn't, you know, like those, these are the kind of things that I think that can help yourself because at the end of the day, we could say until the cows come home, right? We could say uh, that's... um, here, here, I'm going to set up boundaries and here are the things and be nice and, you know, don't, don't say hurtful words and da, 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 da. And again, at the end of the day, we're responsible for how, you know, we move and we feel about things. So what are you doing to make sure that you have your safety net if you are going to expose yourself and expose Mm -hmm. your story? I think that's Mm -hmm. really good advice. Um, Now, Going back a little bit, um, I you mentioned your sister, and I, I'm just curious because I didn't grow up with any biological uh, siblings. But um, mm. was it? Do you think it was somehow different because you got to see a racial mirror and a biological sibling, mm. and you know your 
you had you share similarities and you you had someone with you along the process do you think that that helped at all mm. well so great question uh so growing up with my sister, it's one of those questions, do I think it helps? I can't imagine my life without my sister. And so whenever I hear about siblings reuniting or siblings that had been separated, uh, it, it touches me on a very kind of deep uh, individual, my own experience. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's hard. It's really hard to hear those stories without um, having a lot of sadness. Uh, so I can't imagine what it would be like to not have her. The thing that I like to talk with parents now today about is, is uh, we hear parents say, oh, I'm going to adopt another child from X, right? And um, so then at least they're not the only BIPOC uh, person in our family, or at least they'll have another, you know, Ethiopian or Colombian or, you know, whatever. Um in their family, in our family, uh, so they won't feel totally alone. Uh, I I think that that is very much a uh, that alone is very much a thinking error, and the reason why is because it doesn't matter how many people you adopt from uh, the same country if you have not created language and you haven't created a space to talk openly about adoption and about race and about loss and grief and all of these really hard, complex issues that uh, your children won't be modeled what it looks like yeah. to talk and to support each other. So at the end of the day, people say to me all the time, well, at least you had your sister. Okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like I can't imagine my life without her. So yeah, that's yes. Thank you. And no, we didn't talk to each other. It wasn't until we were adults that we realized you were thinking about our birth mother too. Mm. So was I. We didn't even have the language around birth mothers, first mothers, um, language, why, learning English and uh, learning or losing our Spanish, uh, being brown and race and racism. Those those words weren't even a part of our family's yeah. dialogue to the point where they was age appropriate that we could then have it modeled and use it for our own context. So at the end of the day, the work is still there. Even if you adopt a sibling group or if you adopt more than one child from a country, um, the work is still sitting there right in front of you, which is that does not uh, negate the, the idea that you still have to put a lot of work into modeling what it looks like to have uncomfortable conversations around really hard yeah. topics. Yeah. And I, I feel like you, you hit the nail on the head with just, just, it, it's not a bandaid, uh, adopting another child from the same country. It's not going to just magically fix all the potential issues and problems because children are, are different. We're people and we grow up to have our own opinions and our own preferences. And like my brother was adopted from a, from Colombia, but from a different family. And we do not discuss adoption at all. Like he doesn't like to think that him, my parents aren't his parents, you know, like biological parents. And for him, it's like out of sight, out of mind. I don't want anything to do with it. And 
that can create like issues because it's like I wanted to talk about it he didn't and so I had to find my own community and um so like you mentioned it's it's not going to be a simple solution it's not gonna uh, you should definitely still have those conversations with your child because one may want to talk about it and one may not yeah yeah absolutely and one may want to grow up and do a search and (laughs) the other may not (laughs) right um did before you well i think my question was going to be did you do any dna testing like 23andme um uh so you mean before finding carmenso or uh, either (laughs) like i guess when did you do it Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the reason I asked that question is because uh, that before finding her, I did not. And I didn't realize the importance of doing it after. Uh, And, you know, people would look at Carmenza and me and my sister, even she looked at uh, Carmenza and me and she's like, Astrid, okay, I don't think you need to do a DNA (laughs) test. It's pretty obvious. Like she is your mother. Which, and if you heard the way I just said that, Mia said, it's obvious she is your birth mother. Uh, And we had paperwork that said, my sister and I are sisters. And so I remember being like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, she, she, Mia and I, don't look a whole lot alike. I mean, we, we're both Colombian and we're both brown and um, she has super, super straight hair. I have, you know, somewhat wavy hair. I'm much taller than her. Our facial features, any, you know, we grew up our whole life, people thinking that we were twins. And that is basically because we were raised in such racial isolation that most people, you know, two brown Latinx individuals must be twins, right? Um, and so it, it was just exposure that uh, the majority of the people that we were around hadn't been exposed to a lot of people that looked like us. So the two of us looked like identical twins, which you look at the two of us <laughs> and we do not. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, so my sister saw the similarities between me and Carmenza really strongly, but didn't see herself in Carmenza. So my sister wanted to get a DNA test for me to make sure that I was her full sister uh, and we could prove that. And then I guess then the result of that would tell her if Carmenza Mm -hmm. was her mother, right? Her birth mother as well. Uh, And, but even, so one of the things that I think we oftentimes do is because of what I just described, that we have a tendency for those of us who have been raised in racial isolation, we meet somebody that we're told is our uh, biological family and we go with it because we are one, finally getting, hopefully getting some answers. We don't wanna question whether this is really, really our birth parents or not, I have yet to meet an adoptee who says, you know what, I don't care. The first person who comes up and says, yes, I'm your birth mother, I'll just accept it. Uh, And I mean, there's no adoptee that I know that would feel that way. No, like I'm actually interested in finding my actual (laughs) birth family. (laughs) Um, 
And for that reason, I have met because of how long I've been doing this work. I think I've probably met more than most people have, but I've met enough adoptees who have later found out that the person that they searched and they found um, was actually not their birth mm -hmm. family. And the trauma that comes with that after you've just put all of your eggs in one basket and you've built this relationship yeah. on this individual being and then finding out that they're not. It's, I think it's much healthier and uh, much better to do that on the front end. And it's, uh, and I have people say to me, well, that just sounds really disrespectful to ask for a DNA test once, uh, like, I'm, just, I'm so happy we found each other. I don't, I just want to look into your eyes and say, we just know, <laughs> right? Or as saying to say, saying to somebody, oh, I, I know that you're my birth mother and maybe we should do a DNA test. Just don't really yeah. go together very well. Right. Um, and so I like to encourage adoptees to find language in how to talk to their birth family at post reunion and say, we, we still need to do this. Uh, and we need to do it for all of these all these reasons, confirmation for myself. And I mean, I meet adoptees who say, well, that's fine and dandy, but I don't need confirmation because I just look at them and I say, um, they're absolutely my birth parents and, or my birth siblings or whatever. Um, and I don't think we really think about how desperate so many of us yeah. are to make those connections that we might be in a space where we don't see the full yeah. picture. And when I first found my birth mother, the investigator called me up and I was in disbelief. Like I didn't, didn't believe it at all. And I think it's taken me months to like accept it because it just felt too easy. Mm -hmm. And then, but my story is a little, like, I don't know why it seems so complicated. So many of ours are, but um, I had two siblings that were adopted before me into a different family. And then there was me, I was adopted into another one. And then uh, my birth mother went on to have, uh, get married and have more siblings. So just having all of us and this unique <laughs> um, structure I was like how would this random person know about the other ones um, so I have not broached the subject of a DNA test yet but I've mm. also haven't been back to Columbia because COVID happened so I'm hoping um, next year things will clear up and then we can do that because like you mentioned I, I don't want to just put all my eggs in one basket and just hope everything's right just because the names match and the ID, whatever, because you never know. And I, I feel like part of it is too, like, I grew up in a white majority neighborhood, family, and finally seeing people with brown skin like mine, it's just like, okay, of mm -hmm. course I'm going to think they look like me. <laughs> like, I haven't yeah. seen that before. <laughs> Right, right. And that, that's exactly it, Melissa, is, is that I think we are, you know, we've been sitting in a dry well for so long around information about our original existence and, uh, and that we are so desperate to fill those gaps that we will pretty much take any raindrop that comes down that bucket, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, uh, and so, I think that uh, part of creating safety nets and um, for our emotional safety is um, in and to have this like scientific piece of paper that says 
there is 98% chance that this person, right, is is like the the validity of that and the power of that. And I can't tell you how many times, and for your listeners, I am sorry if any of you have ever experienced this, when somebody says, when you say, I found my birth family, and they say, oh, well, have you done a DNA test? How sure are you? Right. And to plant that seed of doubt in something that brings us so much joy and so much comfort to know that that's happened for us. And then to have somebody question it like that is BS. And I have to say, as somebody who did a DNA test pretty much within three days of finding her, uh, that that piece of paper being able to answer somebody's doubt, which is is just not fair. Uh, but when somebody has that doubt, I can say, yeah, we did a DNA. And then it the conversation shifts 100% from, oh, well, now I want to hear the mm. story. I don't, I don't want to keep filling you with doubts of like, how do you really know? How do yeah. you, you know? And the energy that we put into answering those questions is it's painful. I think it's really painful. It can yeah, be really Yeah, it painful. definitely is. And I, like, I found my half-siblings that were adopted into a different family through, via a DNA test. We found each other through 23andMe. And I, I, I don't know if it's because having that black and white, yes, you're, you're related, uh, makes it safer to to create a bond with them but it's definitely been easier to to connect with them and talk with them than it has with my birth family that's in Colombia that we haven't had a chance to do that yet and uh, I'm curious to see once we do if that will make things a little easier um but (laughs) yeah it's just nice to talk about it with someone who who gets it yeah 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 definitely it is. I mean, it's uh, the the community that we're creating and building and supporting. We're just um, we're so much stronger in numbers, uh, and it just it feels. I agree. It feels really good to to yeah, have that. Yeah. Um, okay, so wrapping up, I'm just gonna ask you if you could give a piece of advice to uh, a prospective adoptive family. Uh, what would it be? And then mm. a piece of advice for an adoptee. <laughs> Okay. So my piece of advice for a prospective adoptive parents is join classes and workshops and uh, that are driven by not just your adoption agency. Uh, and um, I know that so many of your former podcast uh, uh, guests have said the same thing to listen to adoptee voices. Uh, I would say yes, absolutely. And I also am going to say be a critical thinker. Uh, And I think that that is the one thing that I'm seeing post-adopt families struggle with is why didn't I think about these things ahead of time? Because now I have a child that I have to answer these questions to and I don't know how to answer them. And the question is, is why did you come? Why did you come to Colombia to adopt? You had never been there. Why did you um, adopt children, older children that don't speak the language? Why that all all of these, and it's. I think it's so hard in the pre-adopt uh, spectrum, if you will, in the pre-adopt stage, to be thinking about your 18 or 26 year old who is an individual who is a. Uh, 
your we all hope to raise forward thinking yeah. uh, people who are great at asking questions and inquisitive. Uh, and so I'm going to say, try to picture that is the child that you raised, and therefore they're going to have really hard questions for you and be prepared for those. So at, you have the the chance and the de decision making time right now to think critically about all of these things and how will you answer those questions to your kiddos when they're older. Yeah. So, and my piece of advice to adoptees is uh, you're not alone and find your community. We are here. We are here to support you, whether it's Adoption Mosaic or Melissa's Adoptee Thoughts um, podcast or whatever program it is um, there. And we don't all speak or talk the same adoption language. Um, so find your community that's speaking your language. And if you can't find that, I want to encourage you to um, start building. And uh, and if you need support on what that looks like to build, uh, you can always contact me or Melissa or people mm -hmm. like us, right? Because we're excited to, to help you see you find your community. Yes, definitely. And a lot of us, we, we definitely like helping one another. And I think that's something we should continue to do. Um, and thank yeah. you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. It was a wonderful time and I enjoyed our, our conversation a lot. Thank you so much, Melissa. I'm so glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com.